0: He is its head, its source, its origin of spiritual life. It's the first to, he's the first within it to do what eventually he will do for all of us, raise us from the dead, where he came to earth fully God, fully man, to bodily die, shed his blood on the cross, and make a way for sinful men to be reconciled to God and live at peace with him. That is phenomenal in, God's, in Christ's. Person and work. Matt Papa says simply, in Jesus we see the glory of God in stunning clarity and brilliance. And this is the sweetest gift of the gospel. So, because we're going slowly, I want to try and ensure that every single text we're looking at, you're seeing fit within the greater context. Or, as we study a particular tree on a given Sunday, You don't lose sight of the forest and the beauty that's all around that as well. So, three main sections to this letter. They're in green here. All of them having to do with Christ's preeminence, how it is declared, then mostly in chapter 2, how it's defended, and then in chapter 3 and part of chapter 4, how it is demonstrated in our lives. Um, Now that we're three-fourths of the way through this first section, we've seen that Christ is preeminent in the gospel message, That was all the way through that prayer in redemption, in creation, and now last week and today in the church or in the new creation or another way we could say it that we're really going to highlight today, in reconciliation. Here are more reasons yet why Christ is declared to be preeminent. Now, verse 20 and verse 22 both mention reconciliation but they're describing two nuances or unique aspects of it. First of all, in verse 20, the tremendous work of Christ to bring the whole of his creation back to what he created it to be. And then secondly, in verse 22, even more stunning within that is the reconciling of God with man. Because God is so holy and man is so sinful and unholy, it's incredible what Christ has done to bridge this division. Paraphrasing John MacArthur here, but he summarized it in this way. The reconciliation of believers in the church with God through Christ foreshadows a coming ultimate reconciliation of the whole universe with Christ. David Garland. Here we get a glimpse of a divine plan so vast in scale we can barely fathom it. And I would just remind you, take your eyes back to verse 9 of chapter 1. Remember that first prayer request of Paul's? After thanking God for the amazing beginning to the Colossian church, that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. Well, here is the knowledge of his will that's being poured forth, that they would have all spiritual wisdom and understanding about it. So now honing in on today's text, which is verses 21 to 23 of chapter 1, we might say that it reveals four parts or aspects or important truths about what reconciliation with God entails. Verse 21 captures the need for it. Verse 22 at the beginning, or the first half of it, plus what we already saw in verse 20 at the end. It's the means of reconciliation that Christ does. Verse 22, the second half is the goal or the effect of that reconciliation. And verse 23 is the evidence, or we might say the requirement for that ongoing reconciliation for this life and for all of eternity. Or, if you want a little wordier way, my normal leaning, here is a process that Paul is describing for us where he moves us from verse 21 our awful condition before God that our sin puts us in, to verse 22 in the first half, the massive work that Christ did to provide reconciliation for any sinners who will believe with all of their hearts in him and the good news about him. Second half of verse 22 is the third part of that process that we're then transferred or we're transitioned or we're placed from that miserable place, the darkness of domain, to this incredible, holy, blameless position before him. And all of that built in the fourth aspect of the ongoing faith and hope in the gospel that allows us to enjoy that reconciliation in full. I've leaned heavily on Garland, uh, really appreciated his commentary on Colossians. Uh, but I would remind you here this was his assertion of where the prayer ends. In verse 23, not back in verse 12 where most people believe that Paul flows out of the prayer without saying amen right into uh, describing or worshiping the Lord. So Garland puts forth that this prayer has actually gone all the way to this point, and he describes the prayer as a mighty river meandering through stunningly beautiful terrain. Love that word picture. So. Would you join me now as we go to prayer and then let's float down this river, this mighty river, and meander through some more stunningly beautiful, majestic terrain. Holy Spirit, again we ask you as we do each Sunday, please show us Christ, show us more clearly, help us see him, increase our knowledge of God. We want to be able to say, as the Apostle John did, that we have seen the Word, in the Word, become flesh and dwell among us, and that's allowed us to see his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Would you please now help our hearts to understand, to love, to treasure these revelations of our dear Savior and Lord. Fill us afresh with Christ and the gospel. For your glory's sake we ask. Amen. So first truth of these four about reconciliation with God and what it entails. It's the awful condition that our sin puts us in. And I want to just say here, it's really important to recognize the universality, the timelessness, of verses 21 and 22. In other words, there's nothing that has changed from the way they were and what Christ did for them and the way we are and what Christ will do for us now and in the future for anyone in whatever way they may be. All of these are not limited by any of that. Or another way to say it is, Nebraskans, Lincolnites, and Colossians are or bear remarkable similarities. In essence, at the core, we're identical twins. So don't think of this as, well, they were that much worse than we are. This is them. This is us. This is every human being. There's gonna be a number of trilogies. Paul got a little poetic here in his writing under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And so he often has three descriptors. Here is a trilogy of wickedness describing the condition of every human being apart from God because, or without Christ because of our depravity. We could say that alienated describes our condition of our relationship with God, that hostile describes our attitudes, and that Evil doing describes our actions. But it doesn't really matter what condition we think or feel we're in, or what kind of relationship we think or feel we have with God when we're apart from Him. These are the facts that God is revealing to us. So, first of all, He says that we are alienated, we're isolated, we're estranged, we're divorced, we're cut off, we're separated. Isaiah 59:2, when God is talking to Israel, He speaks of it as saying, it's, "You're not saved. It's not my hand that's too short or not able to save. It's not my ear that doesn't hear. It's your iniquities that have separated you from God and hidden His face from you, so He does not hear." In other words, the ways of God and the nature of God are alien or foreign to human beings. We don't think like He does naturally. Rather than being anchored in God in relationship, our sin actually makes us adrift alone with no real sense of belonging. Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 4 both describe this in much more graphic detail. Secondly, God says we're hostile in mind. The way we think about God, about his word, about his truth, about Christ, about the gospel, is warped. It is short of all that is there. Paul would later write in Romans 8, The mind that is set on the flesh is, here's the word again, hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It's rather than agreeing with God, it is being against God. Animosity, enemy-like, malicious, thoughts that are biased or wrong or distorted. And another way to think of it, perhaps for some, is to deny this truth is actually to demonstrate it, that it is hostility toward God in so many ways. And then third of the trilogy is doing evil deeds. So now the thinking and the attitude and the heart condition flesh itself out in doing evil deeds. The disobedience of God, whether that's sins of commission or sins of omission, it's desiring sin, preferring sinful things over God, choosing it when we want. It's failing to see what God calls evil as evil, but instead thinking of it as good, fine, okay, not that bad. And what God calls good, thinking of it as, okay, being indifferent toward it, taking it or leaving it. All of this, we might say, is what it means to be Christless. And I put another way up there of another way that you can kind of think of this describing our relationship, our thinking, and our way of living. So the thought that we hear so often that humans are basically good, at the core, God is denying and actually saying that's the opposite of reality from his viewpoint. All sinners are in a horrible condition apart from Christ It just may be disguised from their eyes for now because of the the pleasures that sin in the world give us so temporarily. But Garland reminds us here, sin makes a shambles of created harmony and gives battle to God's restoration work. Above all, sin lays waste our critical relationship to God in an infinite variety of tangled ways. We might say all of these things are relationship-wrecking things that do not bring harmony and peace. Let's circle around this a little bit more. It's not just how many evil deeds because one makes us alienated and hostile to God. James 2 tells us, verse 10, that you can keep the whole law. If you fail in one, you become guilty of all. Uh, Furthermore... You don't have to commit heinous crimes like a Hitler or a Stalin to be considered by God as alien and hostile to him or for you to deserve condemnation and hell and the wrath of God. God is not judging by American morality. Let's not be misled by that to determine if someone is criminal. He's judging every person, including you, by an infinitely higher and holier standard. In God's legal system, there aren't misdemeanors or felonies. There are only capital offenses, all of them, bringing the death sentence. And again, you can choose not to believe this, but that doesn't change the truthfulness or the reality of it. And probably for most people, of all the things that we talk about that the Bible teaches, this is among the most difficult for them to accept and believe okay with some of the parts about God, maybe you're okay with some of the parts about Jesus, but the parts about ourselves and how evil we truly are before God are really, really, really difficult for people to swallow. But if you ever want to be reconciled to God and made right with God, you must agree that verse 21 describes you to a T and that all three of those things are true of you without Christ and that there is nothing you yourself can do to alter and change that position. Only Christ can and has. And always trying to bring it down to us as well to just remind ourselves, the unregenerate, the unsaved in a Christian home, in a Christian church, in other kinds of Christian settings, even in youth, does not lessen these spiritual descriptions at all. We may look more moral on the outside, but the core is just as rotten as Hitler's. All have sinned. All fall short of God's glory and perfection and holiness. Not one meets his requirement. And the wage, the cost, the penalty of every one of those, no matter what kind, no matter what amount, is death, alienation, hostility toward God, and ultimately condemnation. So that's the bad news, that's the hard stuff to swallow, but the word turns us immediately to what Christ has done to provide reconciliation or to make it possible. So Garland here says the theme of human rebellion and sin is an unbroken scarlet thread that runs through the entire Bible to the foot of the cross, and there it has been severed. So the thought in verse 22, as we've noted, is very similar to the thought in verse 20, at least both of them talking about reconciliation, about the ability to have peace with God, and the emphasis on how that has been brought about. So Garland here defines reconciliation as breaking the cycle of sin, healing the ruptured relationship with God, and bringing us into accord with God's holy character and purpose, which is what the second half of verse 22 will do. Verse 22 at the beginning is where reconciliation can even begin to happen between sinners and God. It allows it to be initiated the moment a sinner believes and ultimately be consummated when the kingdom of God comes in full. There can be no reconciliation without a bloody cross and a bodily death of Jesus Christ. Just as back in verse 14, there can be no redemption and forgiveness of sin without a bloody cross and a bodily death of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul narrowed it all down to say, the thing I'm going to preach here in Corinth and everywhere he went is to know very little else beyond Christ and him crucified. P.T. Forsyth, you do not understand Christ until you understand his cross. Matt Papa, throughout eternity, we will still be peering at the cross. Where verse 20 emphasized cross and blood, verse 22 emphasizes death and physical body. But the point is, the one who in verses 15 to 19 is fully identified with God, now in verses 20 and 21 is fully identified with sinful humanity. This aspect of Christ's physical body is so important. John wrote that anyone who confesses Christ has come in the flesh and under that is all that he has done and accomplished in the flesh is from God and every spirit that doesn't confess Jesus is from God. That's the spirit of Antichrist. And even though Paul is very simple in his description here in Colossians 1.22a, It's worth remembering as your eyes hover over body of flesh and death to remember the descriptions of Isaiah 53, and I captured just a few of them there. The grief, the sorrow, the stricken, the smitten of God, afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastisement, wounds, oppressed, an incredible price to pay so that we can have that reconciliation. Verse 22 then goes on to to add yet an even more mind-boggling aspect. The good news of the gospel gets even better. He's reconciled you so that he can present you, and now we get a trilogy again, only now it's a trilogy of righteousness. It stands in very stark contrast to the trilogy of verse 21, reversing our pre-Christ condition. Kent Hughes notes, while the scriptures paint the darkest possibilities for man apart from Christ, they also give us the highest, noblest vision of man known to any religious conception anywhere. First, he presents us as holy, that rather than being separated from God by our sin, we now are separated from our sin and set apart for God as holy, righteous, sinless in our standing before God as Christ himself is because there's only one level of holiness. It's Christ. And that's where 2 Corinthians 5.21, that's so familiar to us but is so beautiful. For our sake, God made him, Christ, his son, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness, the holiness of God himself. Secondly, using Old Testament sacrifice language, he makes us blameless. Uh, Peter spoke of Christ's blood being pure um, and undefiled and precious. And then third, above reproach, free from possible accusations that no being can bring any legitimate charge against us before the Father. As one person said, the accuser Satan cannot even make one charge stick against us. And hence the question in Romans 8:33: who shall, who legitimately can bring any charge against God's elect? couple of quotes by John Piper that were helpful for me thinking through this truth. A short one, first of all, "By the death of His Son, God is now creating a new race of holy people who have given up their hostility to God." And then a longer thought. "The best news in all the world is that our alienation from God is ended, and we are reconciled to the judge of the universe. God is no longer against us," as verse 21 described. But for us. These are shocking words in comparison to the actual us. It's almost too good to be true. But we must preach to ourselves this blameless presentation before God is not us. Righteousness and Christ Himself, I'm sorry, is not because we have perfect lives after conversion. Christ Himself has become to us righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Our only hope before a holy God is Christ in our place. For some of you, this might be the hardest piece to believe. Do you? Do you really, really fully see yourself in this incredible standing before God Almighty? Or are you holding on to some shame? some kind of lie about not being able to forgive yourself for past sins, though Christ has because of your faith and repentance. Are you perhaps listening to and believing any of Satan's lies about where you are with God because of what Christ has done? So we have this beautiful picture, God moving us from this unreconciled, awful condition over to this incredible, glorious, reconciled condition, and in between stands the cross of Christ and all that he paid in order to move us from here to here in the spiritual realms in incredibly powerful ways. And that brings us to the fourth and final of the parts of reconciliation or the processes, and that's the evidence, the responsibility of reconciliation that then even rests upon us. Verse 23 starts with this massive if, if you continue in the faith. Now, Paul is beginning to take us back to verse 3 of chapter 1, and you're going to see all kinds of things here in verse 23 that are also worded back in verses 2, 3, 4 of chapter 1. This is the very foundation for God's work with man, that faith is the response that sinful ones must have to Christ, to the gospel, to the good news, that reconciliation without faith is impossible. So Ephesians 2, we're saved, we're reconciled to God by grace. It's his gift. It's what Christ has done, but it's appropriated to us through faith. While Christ does all the work, it's enacted to us by our faith in him. Not a one-time act, not a temporary short thing, not the emotion of a moment, not an event way in our past, but an ongoing, continuous, step-by-step, trusting in Christ, trusting in his word, trusting his promises, trusting his work, trusting his nature, and never letting go of that. The word in chapter 2, verse 19 will be clinging to. It's the idea of just hanging on without deviating from, without quitting, without fading, without turning. It's persevering. It's faithfulness. Not faith in our faith, not faith in a creed or a doctrine, not just faith in God in general, but most precisely faith and believing in Christ and what he has done. It's a faith that produces change. It's a faith that lasts through time. It's a faith that doesn't shift and change over to other things. It's a faith in which our love does not grow cold. It's a faith in which our heart does not grow hard. Piper put it this way. Do you pray for your strained soul? I do, daily. The soul is always in motion. If you think yours is motionless, you're probably floating downstream. Daily, the soul is lured to other treasures, other satisfactions, and other rewards besides Jesus. And so Paul's words of concern to the Corinthian church in his second letter in chapter 11. He says, I feel a divine jealousy for you. I betrothed you to one husband, speaking of to Christ, to present you, notice the same language as we just saw back in Colossians 1, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts, and quite possibly your faith as a result, will be led astray from or not continue in a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So the Bible is replete with warnings. We're not going to walk through all of those, but just perhaps capturing it most not only in what John 6, 66 says about many of them who followed Jesus for a time, turning and no longer walking with him, but also of the parable that Jesus told of the four soils, each of them depicting how long faith in Christ and the gospel and the word and truth lasts in a life. And so there's the path depicting The devil snatching it away before the seed ever penetrates into the heart of the soil, and they just flat out never believe and are never saved. Then there's those on the rocks who hear it, receive it to begin with, with joy, but never root it down. Remember the root word. It's going to be significant coming up. They believe for a while, but when there's times of testing, they fall away. They don't continue in the faith. Then the thorns are people who hear, they go on their way, seem to be faithful, but over time, a year, two, three, five, ten, sometimes twenty, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and the fruit never matures. But it's those with the good soil who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Warning is, those who follow Christ must not ever take it for granted, be lackadaisical with our faith, or allow, us, allow it to be misled into either deconstructing our faith or replacing our faith in Christ with something else. Once again, Paul piles up three descriptors in a row here, another trilogy. Now it's a trilogy of faithfulness to God that he's describing How true faith in Christ overcomes anything and everything that seeks to undermine it, attack it, or tear it down in any way. It's faith that's stable, firm, established. Remember that word. A foundation on which an entire life is built. It doesn't waver. It doesn't go up and down. It isn't affected by the circumstances. It doesn't come and go. It's steadfast, secondly, Or if you just think of the word steady, it just keeps going and going regardless of what comes up against it. It holds steady when one's flesh and in a myriad of ways rises up against it. It stays steady when the devil and the domain of darkness in a myriad of ways stealthily try to mislead, upset, divert, destroy, undermine, weaken in any way our faith. And it stays steady when the world in a myriad of ways from its pleasures and treasures to its persecutions and attacks, tries to pull one back into the world. The Pilgrim's Progress illustrates this in so many uh, good ways. And then third, not shifting. Someone said earthquake-proof faith. To have a faith that is not like Ephesians 4 warns us about. Children who are tossed to and fro like wind on the waves by every doctrine or every teaching or every new thing that comes along, every new podcast, every new speaker, every new celebrity, every new book, when every possibility and reason to disbelieve in Christ has come at a person and they continue to hold fast to him. Coming up in Colossians in a few weeks, in chapter two, verses six to seven, we'll see a trilogy again of this description, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, the initiating faith of salvation, so now walk the rest of your life in him. And notice now this threefold description, rooted down. Remember the root in the parable of the soils? Built up in and established. He's just taken three different swings at this faith that we must have. That's why at the end of Paul's life it was so critical to him to say the time for my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, that inheritance that Colossians talks about which the Lord will award to me and to all who have loved his appearing. It's crucial always that one's faith is only in Christ and always in Christ. And the truth by which our faith begins must be the same truth which grows our faith all the way to the end. And then in the latter half of verse 23, Paul now brings us full circle back to what he emphasized so much in verses 2 to 6 of chapter 1. Besides the faith, we now also see the hope of the gospel, this incredible holding out that the gospel gives us of, you'll have a taste, you're going to get some of it now, but there are promises for the future and for eternity that are mind-boggling when it is fully cons- consummated. And so hope is this confident certainty, and expectation of the fulfillment of those promises. I don't have them all yet, but based on all I have experienced, I have a deep, unwedging confidence in it all coming true and being infinitely better than I can imagine. Hebrews speaks of faith as a sure and steady anchor, steadfast anchor of our souls, and Peter exhorts us to set our hope fully, completely on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The more we think about eternal heavenly things, and I would just remind you of Colossians 3, 2 here, set your mind on things that are above. The more impassioned we become for it, the less this world attracts, tempts, and distracts us, and the less even the difficulties and discouragements of this world hold us back or break down our faith. And then... Verse 23 reminds us of what he said back in verse 4 as well, that it's been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. This is the fulfillment, as we noted back then, of Jesus' promise in Matthew 24 that the gospel would be proclaimed throughout the whole world to all nations before the end would come. And here again is this universal truth and the gospel still being proclaimed, even to this day, the same thing in Lincoln, Nebraska, as in Colossae back then, 2,000 years ago. Nothing different, same gospel, nothing more, nothing less, same truths about Christ, same Christ, same work of the cross that saves now as it did then. i rely on Garland's description. Again, I shared this with you uh, back when we were in this section at the beginning of the book. The gospel is swept across geographical and racial barriers. Against all odds, it has found a ready reception throughout the world, and this power to surmount provincial resistance testifies to its truth. The message of God's love for all humankind and Jesus' sacrificial death to redeem, and I would add reconcile us, by grace speaks in any language or culture. It speaks to the universal condition of every human being, male or female, slave or free, Jew or Greek, Gentile, The gospel here was bursting forth, and I would say now it continues to burst forth because it is the power of salvation. And then at the very end of verse 23 is a transitional thought, which we'll pick up next week, where Paul says it's this gospel, this work, this faith, this hope for which I became a minister or I became a servant of the gospel seeking to proclaim it and carry it out to the world. Closing thought, let's just come back to these four things that this passage, incredible passage, what a revelation about the reconciliation that Christ effects or provides or works or accomplishes here through faith in him. First of all, again, the true need for sinners or the why That they need to be reconciled to God while they'll never make it to heaven otherwise. Secondly, the true and only means by which we can be reconciled. There aren't several options. The only one that could overcome our sin and our condition against God is Christ himself and the cross and the effects of Christ's reconciling work. The glorious position that he has put us in. And with that thought, I want to point to John Piper's thoughts from here that I hope will encourage you. Will you get your identity from being in Christ? Will you get your assurance before God from being in Christ? I promise you, if you're wired like me, every day you will go to bed uncertain whether you lived your life the way you should. Every day, because I have so many options. A constant selective neglect of good things is what my life seems to be made up of. Have I made good choices? How can I sleep? In Christ is my only hope for going to bed with any peace at all. How else can you live? In Christ for your assurance. In Christ for your hope. In Christ for your confidence. In Christ for your courage. And We can make a much longer list there. Everything flowing from the union with Christ. And that is why continuing faith is Christ, in Christ, our fourth and final part of this study of reconciliation, the evidence, the ongoing work of faith and hope in Christ is so essential. Lord, again, we thank you for this section of Colossians, the way you have unpacked this incredible gift of reconciling us to you. Father, we are so grateful for that. We'd have no means to have the relationship we have with you. We'd have no means to have these prayers right now heard by you and answered by you. All because of your son. We are so grateful now and for all of eternity for what he accomplished in his body and in his death on the cross and in his resurrection. So God, would you stir these truths, though they are familiar to us in many ways, would you stir them afresh Stun us anew with what depravity you've saved us out of. Stun us anew with the holy standing that we have before you. And use this, Lord, that we would proclaim these truths, whether it's evangelistically to the lost, in our own families and devotions, and to our own hearts, wherever we may not be believing these glorious truths of reconciliation. Thank you, Jesus, for reconciling us to the Father. Thank you.